That was a tension by Charlie Puth. I didn't turn my mic on. <laughs> you know, I had to turn on five this morning, and I didn't turn on my own one. That's what, that's, you, get, that's what you get for telling me to shut up before you <laughs> turn on all the mics. That was not a, It was an affectionate. It was not an affectionate shut oh up. That gosh. was a violent, You heard aggressive. it here first, folks. Okay, I'm sorry. Hostile work environment. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but There's so many people in the room. I know, there, there, there literally is. Um, Let's hit you through his intro. Yeah, let me... Let me finish first. Um, good morning. You're, you're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro studio. Welcome to the Thursday morning wake-up call. Long on life, national news, international issues. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, <laughs> and we have so many people in the studio today. <laughs> Why are you talking like <laughs> To make you laugh. To make you laugh, and it's working. Um, Alexa Servo to my left. Yes. Alexa, uh, not Alexa, <laughs> Dallas Jackson <laughs> in front of me. Okay? Lauren Ballinger to my right. And the birthday girl. Birthday girl. Rachel Yay. Hyatts. Yay. Happy birthday. Thank Yay. you. Thank you, Um, We have so much to talk about today. We're talking about shocking COVID statistics, Coachella styles, and some really lucky third graders from the great state of Arizona. Zona. Um, but we have some breaking updates first i think alexa has an announcement to make oh i wanted to say happy anniversary to my parents just because i think Aww. it's 21 years today so yeah super exciting love you guys ha a, a very happy anniversary from the thursday morning wake-up call there are also some other breaking developments in new york state the new york court of appeals tossed out a democrat drawn redistricting map and pushed primaries back that is a breaking story that we hope to have coverage on soon here on the morning wake up call and this really got my <laughs> blood boiling when i read this article by the new york post it said that a majority of garden staters from the greatest state <laughs> of new jersey want to leave i mean why why <laughs> like i had a conversation with my friend yesterday and she was like you know what's so great about new jersey and i go I'm gonna level with you. That's I cannot, actually a really valid question. Can you? Sorry. I'm like I'm gonna speak. I'm like I'm like I'm gonna level with you. I cannot sell New Jersey to you. There's no way you'll ever buy it. It's just when you're from the state, you learn to love it and hate it at the same time. You roll with the punches. You, you roll with the with punches. Given. But I said for me, it's home, and I can <laughs> never turn my back on my home never turn your back on jersey never turn back on my literal day ones my day ones. <laughs> day one. my shoddies my real ones i hope all the babies from hackensack hospital are doing good today <laughs> are doing good those those that's those. so odd Diddy. hospital yeah there i was born i was born in hackensack i know but that statement was so odd <laughs> <laughs> All the babies in, in Hackensack, Hackensack Hospital. Hospital. I hope all the February 15 births in Hackensack. Everyone you share a birthday with in Hackensack. Yeah, those are the, those are the real day ones. The real day ones. <laughs> they were there from the very beginning. <laughs> they were there from the absolute start. Um, but enough funny business. Enough silly and goofy. Funny. All right, serious faces. Ready? No, it's Everyone? Not, it never happens. It never happens. <laughs> well, who's doing the first story? Because I got to be serious. Dallas. All right, is... Dallas, go so... full Batman. Vengeance. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So. Go whoa, 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 whoa. Pause. Are we good? All the laughs are out. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right, Dallas, take it away. We have our first story today. So, according to a CDC report uh, released this Tuesday, 
At least 58% of the U.S. population have natural antibodies from previous COVID infections. It's also important to emphasize that this analysis does does not factor in the number of people who have antibodies due to being vaccinated, because there's a specific type of antibody only produced in response to an actual COVID infection. The report goes on to break down the numbers, showing that three out of every five people in the U.S. have these antibodies, and the data from the CDC has attributed this drastic and pronounced increase to an Omicron variant surge that occurred during the winter. The surge boosted the numbers from 34% in December to about 58% in February due to an unprecedented wave of infection from this highly contagious variant. The population that experienced the most pronounced increase was children. Roughly 75% of children and teenagers now have antibodies from past COVID infections. That's an increase from about 45% in December. The CDC attributes this to a lower rates of vaccinations in comparison to results as only 28% of children 5 to 11 years old and 59% of teens 12 to 17 were fully vaccinated as of April. People 65 and older are a part of a group with the highest vaccination rates and, and only had 33% only 33% had antibodies from infection. Roughly 64% of adults between the ages of 18 and 49 and 50% of people 50 to 64 had the antibodies. CDC officials told reporters on Tuesday that the study did not measure if those with previous infections had high enough antibody levels to protect against reinfection or illness, further illness down the line. And according to CDC data, about 66% of the U.S. is fully vaccinated and 77 have re- received at least one dose. Though these numbers are much improved from before, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Wolineski continues to support vaccination and boosting to protect against COVID, and the full report can also be read in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report and is also available online. 58%. That's crazy. Because I remember in April 2020 reading articles that were saying, you know, we can see infection figures 150 million to 200 million infected and that number is pretty much right on the money i would say Mm -hmm. um it's just unfortunate that we couldn't stamp it out you know as however unrealistic that prospect would have been this is not the worst case scenario in terms of mortality but it's probably up there in terms of the worst case scenarios with infection numbers Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a lot of people um especially like i wanted to mention we were talking about the antibodies and the people who had the antibodies when i had covid i like my body did not form antibodies i don't know Mm -hmm. why like my like i know i had covid i can't even be like oh maybe i was just sick and it and it was it was covid i was Mm -hmm. sick my brother was sick my dad was sick we all tested positive my mom was the only one in the house who tested negative for covid and when we did the antibody test she had the highest antibodies out of everybody Mm -hmm. and i didn't have any so we don't really know. Oh, like wait, that makes sense. If she didn't get it, that's probably because she had the antibodies already. I yeah. guess. That, yeah, but I didn't have any antibodies at all, and I was really, really sick. And the nurse was like, yeah, you know, it just happens sometimes. Like, it we don't really do know why. Like I was like, okay. So there's even people, like, if that 58% is counting the people who got sick. And had and an- antibodies present in their body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's crazy because COVID is still affecting a lot of people that... Mm-hmm don't form those antibodies but i don't know i feel like the numbers for covid uh infections they're they're getting lower and it's yeah i mean not by much but it's there's you can be optimistic about it i think the thing that like really shocked me was just the how short of a time period it took for it to increase so much like in about december it was at like 34 percent and now it's at 58 percent and i in that like two-ish month period it was like a 24 percent 24% of the U.S. population got infected, and I think that's so crazy because 
I remember the period of time where like only people were like getting a lot sicker. I feel like it was winter. right around Christmas, right? It was when Christmas like we all went back to break. Yeah. Like I just keep hearing about like people when they got back home they got sick. And I just think that's so crazy because like I was sitting there. I haven't gotten it yet. Knock on like wood. Yeah. My whole my family's been fine. Nothing there was like a crazy peak in like between December and January. Yeah. yeah. There was like a three to four week period where it was like Either you had COVID or someone you knew had COVID, mm-hmm. someone in your family, everybody. The, everyone had some COVID story in those that mm-hmm. three to four week time period, which is probably where most of the increase yeah. happened yeah. in that short time period. Time it's period. Ti- time period. I went to say time span <laughs> and it came out time period. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's, uh, it's all right. It's It happens. Um, but that is very true. But the thing is, with that... You mentioned that 24% just leap mm-hmm. during December and January. The deaths during that time were pretty shocking. Like, there was a week, the, the last week of January into the first week of February, 18,000 people died. Mm. That's That just jumps off the screen or the page or wherever you're reading that statistic. But the one silver lining about the fact that Omicron spread, spread so quickly is that it probably don't want to say ran its course, but it just sped up all the damage mm-hmm. it was eventually going to do. Like there's, it kind of concentrated all the infection and mortality rates into one really brutal time. Mm-hmm. And now we're just kind of, I mean, Dr. Anthony Fauci said this yesterday, we're out of the pandemic phase. If you want to believe him or not, that's up to you. But what is true is that our infection rates are just have create they've cratered mm-hmm. and they might be might be going up now because of the ba2 or ba.2 i don't really know how to say it properly I think it's ba.2 all right well ba.2 um that submarine is not helping things but in terms of just pandemic mode i feel like not just the numbers but our social consciousness mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a pandemic anymore we kind of talked about this like a while ago, I don't know if you remember, but like a month or two ago, we were talking about how um, they were saying it's going to start coming back like the flu and it's going to be like like a yearly thing where maybe we'll lose masks for a little bit and everything will be okay and then numbers will rise again for a couple months and we might have to put the mask back on. And I think if that's true, this is going to be the phase where everything starts to calm down. And the other thing too is like summer when it gets hot out, the infections they kind of decrease a little bit but it was the same it's the same thing like with the flu that's why most people are sick in the winter compared to the warm temperatures in the summer it happened last year it's gonna happen again this year as yeah. the weather and gets then the end of the summer it got bad yeah remember because delta yeah it's like you can never catch a break i just looked up like the vaccination numbers to see like look at like the change in like december of 2021 it was only like 74 percent of the population was had at least one dose of the vaccine and again, as it said in the CDC report, that's gone up to 77%, which, like, doesn't feel like enough in yeah, comparison to how not. many people got sick, if that makes sense. Yeah, you. it does mm-hmm. not. But again, with the whole social consciousness thing, with the, we talked about it last week, the court decision, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of it's, – it's a very divisive decision, safe to say. And then, you know, all the mask mandates going away, all the protocols and restrictions going away. I think people are ready to leave that behind for good, however ready we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are just tired of it. 
Yeah. It's it's un- and it sucks. It's been a long two years. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is like this is definitely something that we should continue to be cautious about, mm-hmm. but nobody wants to be anymore. Like it's like it's like we have the the we vaccine. Have, like, we're yes, exactly. Like it's like the thought process. Or we're all vaccinated. Everybody's almost everybody has gotten COVID at this mm-hmm. point. So it's just like we're done. We're over it. We don't we don't want to deal with it anymore. My high school track coach had a saying whenever we did a workout we didn't want to do, he goes, We suffer together. And I don't think when it comes to a pandemic that's what you want to do. Yeah. You know? I think you wanna to try to avoid the suffering together. That's another thing that I read about that like the main reason why the numbers were like so bad was or because people stalled on getting vaccinated. It was like a CNN article that I read. Um it's because they like had the concept of like herd immunity. They're like, if other people like get it, then we'll be fine. Yeah. Or if enough people do, and I'm just like, that just doesn't feel safe with like a super deadly virus that we don't really know much about. Yeah. To just be like, I believe in herd immunity. We should have been be talking about herd vaccination. <laughs> herd vaccination. What about Shut that? Up, herd vaccination. What about that? That would have been a great talking mm-hmm. point. <laughs> and I think, unfortunately, the consequence when you just see these numbers is you're just numb to it yeah COVID doesn't even register to me anymore it's like oh it's an everyday thing you Mm -hmm. talk you could talk about it every single day this is not a novelty yeah I remember throwback to the days where the last normal day of the year there was like oh somebody in like the town over got it and it was just it was was, so crazy for me yeah because there's like a town next to me called Red Bank and someone's like oh someone in Red Bank got it and it was like whoa I, I remember when I was in high school, it was, like, it, like earlier in March, there were people who were, like, oh, our rival school got, someone in our rival school got it. I, I heard it was, like, a teacher. I heard it was a student. And we are all, like, dang, that's crazy. That sucks for them. And then, like, two days later, my principal was, like, yeah, y'all, pack it up. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. And then just, that was the end of my back. junior year. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was so upset because they kept pushing it. I don't know if it was the same for you guys. It was for they me. But they just it. kept pushing it. It was like the two weeks. And then they're like, all right, well, we're going to give it another week. And then they sent out another email like a week later. And they're like, we're actually going to give it two more weeks. And then mm-hmm. by like mid-May. Yeah, that's when they, they were the like, They were like, we're just kidding. We're not yeah. going to go back. That's it for us. Like, I remember my like school history. They were like, oh, you were working on plans for prom. Stay tuned and stay excited about prom. And I was like, yeah, prom is going to happen at the end of the year. I'm going to get to go to like my, my junior, senior prom as a junior. It's gonna yeah, be sick. I lost my junior banquet. And I also, we, my high school does a ring ceremony. So for the juniors, if you get like a class ring, mm-hmm. they do like a ceremony. You get like your class pin, you get a ring. And they ended up not doing that. And then after they closed the school down for like junior year of high school, when they, they officially like pulled the plug. Mm-hmm. When we went into the school, they had dedicated days for d- certain students to go, like, clean out their lockers. They handed me my class ring in a Ziploc bag on my way in. I got it in the mail. Well, no. I, like, <laughs> That's the worst. I get it. I, yeah. It's just, like, it, when you're looking forward yeah. to that that big, like. That big high school. Yeah, moment. exactly. Like, it's something that you look forward mm-hmm. to. The juniors get, like, a half day of school. They do the ring ceremony. They get their rings. And then that's usually the day of their junior banquet. They get to go home early, get ready, get dressed. Like, so when you, when you see that for two years as mm-hmm. a freshman and a sophomore and you're looking forward to that. And then the way you get your class ring is because they handed it to you in a, in a Ziploc bag on your way to clean out your locker. Like, mm-hmm. that's so – I was – so upset like i was beyond upset 
also like a thing i don't know if this happened at you guys school but like during like my junior year the like everybody was like concerned about the seniors because like obviously they're missing out on a lot of like great experiences and things like that but then like they just forgot about my grade in the process of yeah. like trying to figure out like graduation prom the senior events and stuff like that so by yeah. the time like my senior year started they were like oh Oh, we gotta do this again. You're like, there's a whole year of this. My well, bad, y'all. I, I was the senior class. If you f- would f- not forget, old man I'm an old man. Old man I'm the elder statesman here. <laughs> elder statesman. Um, it was, it was disappointing. We cut, we kept getting it pushed back, like you, Alexa. But all of our teachers just were so naive. They're like, oh, this will pass. This will be fine. Yeah. I'm like, no, this is not going away. I had a teacher who like would do the tracker. And he'll be like, he would like give us updates until it got like to a point where he was like, ooh. Yeah, no, this, maybe this, not. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not at the, the beginning of the day in math class. I will say, though, I was trying to make the most of it at one point because the way they, they switched the schedules around once we were remote, I had like three classes one day, three classes the next day, and it would like alternate. Mm-hmm. And I was doing these, I, I would lay outside in the sun and I would, I would tan and I would just put the class next to me. So it was like, I was trying to make the most out of it and be like, guys, yeah, we're not in school, but like, go outside. And and it was like, <laughs> Alexa was that girl. I yeah. was trying so hard because if I wasn't optimistic, I was probably just gonna cry about it. Yeah. So honestly, I same. had to be. I know, like the first like month of us being in school online, I still went through like my daily routine of like getting up, uh, like getting dressed, like putting oh, on an outfit. I did. If I didn't, I felt like I was gonna go. Like I wanted like words to. crazy. I didn't know what I would do. Yeah, no, no. I good. was getting like um, cabin fever. Is that yeah. the right? I was getting yeah. cabin fever in my own house. I was like, I can't do this. I need to put yeah. on like jeans. Yeah, I rolled I out of bed, jeans. put on a bathing suit, and went outside. To and s- to that's sunbathe. the that's the big thing about all this. It's disruptive, and it's, we've gotten to a point where it's not disruptive anymore. But at what cost, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how much do we have to see for it to just fade into the background? And it's 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 like I said, just unfortunate. Although I think I have the funniest COVID story. It was the last normal day, the day we got. I got back to we drove to school. Was dead. Teachers like, oh, we're gonna have this little meeting after school to talk about it. Like, no big deal. Mm. We're like, okay. My school did the yeah, same thing. Yeah, I know. It was so dramatic. Like, mm, mm, don't worry about it. <laughs> and then I went home. I we walk into the to our house to the. T- our TV has Trump declaring the national emergency. Like, mm, this is a little weird. And then I'm like, quirky. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go to. The, I went to the beach. I like, had a great day. I was in, I was in my friend's jacuzzi that night. <laughs> and my parents are like, you should come home. I'm like, nah. Yeah. It's fine. It's it fine. was like everything stopped at once, right? Like yeah. that day, like I was March out and 13th. about. And then I didn't even go to school on March 13th. Do you know how sad that oh, is? Oh, yeah, you kept you told me that before. Yeah, I, my last day of school was March 12th because I got into a huge fight with my friends and I woke up the next morning and I was like, Mom, I just don't want to, like, mm-hmm. go see them today. And I stayed home. Alexa, and then I, yeah, this that, is a decom movie moment. Yeah, no, I was like, I just don't want to see them. And then I missed my last day of junior year mm-hmm. because I wanted to be petty and sleep all day. Wow. <laughs> like, Little bit. For me. March 12th was also my, like, I had, like, such a good day March 12th. I went to the mall with my friends, uh, uh, Lily and Tess. Shout out Tess. It's also her birthday. She's in Ithaca. Um, We went to the mall, and we, like, had a half day on that day for some reason, and we just hung out the entire afternoon. And I just remember, like, we went to school March 13th, and we were like, we had such a good day yesterday. We should do that again, like, next week. It was so cute to have a little girl's day. And then, like, we went home, and I was, like, walking out of the school to, like, go home. 
and I saw all the teachers gathered in the library, like having this big meeting. And I was like, yeah. our library like wall is like glass. So I just looked at it. And I was just like, that's weird. It was an abrupt halt. Yeah. Well, as One Direction said, isn't it crazy just how fast the night changes? Oh goodness! Oh. Did, you, but, did you just put a One Direction quote? Relate like, but, One Direction but, to COVID? All right, we got it. No, I didn't. It's just crazy how fast it was yeah. a Danny yeah. transition. It was a Danny transition, and I'm actually so happy you brought up a library. Because we're going to talk about the over 1,500 books that have been challenged or banned in the United States over the past nine months. Look at that trans. Dallas made I'm it so such a easy for me. It's, it's not like I haven't seen the run. Dallas yet. made it so easy for me. But this is a really almost alarming story. Multiple reports from Pan America and the American Library Institute are saying these are the highest book challenge numbers ever. And to get more on this, I spoke to Dr. Emily Knox from the University of Illinois about this drastic rise in straight up censorship of books across America. Here's what she had to say. Denzo and I'm joined by Dr. Emily Knox, an associate professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois. Today, we will be discussing the over 1,500 books that have been challenged in the United States over the past nine months per recent reports. Dr. Knox, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm happy to be here, thanks. No problem. So back to that number I mentioned, Pen America reports that there were 1,586 book challenges in the United States over the past nine months, targeting 1,145 unique books by over 800 authors. And the American Library Association in their report on the matter said their numbers on the book removal process were the highest the organization saw in two decades. So that just begs the question, Dr. Knox, what is behind these numbers and what are your thoughts about them? Yeah, so I would say that the main thing that we're going through right now is a lot of societal change. And that's really what these book, and we call them challenges because not, not all the books are banned, um, are reflecting. So we have, for example, the pandemic, we have the backlash uh, election of Donald Trump, we have the insurrection, we have the greater visibility of people who are discussing their gender identity. All of these things lead to people wanting to control something local, and often that's their local public libraries and public schools. In your view, what are the effects of book bannings and a cultural democracy that is growing ever more comfortable with them? So you really have to look at the level of analysis to look at the effects. So you have to be very careful about what and where are they, is the attempt to challenge the book. So if a book is attempted to be challenged, say in a curriculum, that's a little bit different than a book being challenged in a public library. And so the people who are bringing these challenges actually have different things that they are trying to do. So challenging a book in a curriculum is really about things like indoctrination and coercion. I'll just put those out there. Um, and challenging a book in a public library is much more about community good um, than it is so much about indoctrination. So I think the way to look at it is that we have not really come to a consensus on how we understand what is going on in our world. So a lot of these books are about diverse topics. So I just use that term, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, people in the LGBTQIA um, population. Like these are books that are talking about um, lives that have not been centered before. And so should we be concerned? Absolutely, because the effects are really saying to people, um, 
you should know your place. You should know um, that you are not necessarily um, accepted in all communities across the country. Glad you brought up that point because diving into these trends, 41% of the books challenged featured prominent characters of color, 33% included LGBTQIA themes, and 22% quote, directly address issues of race and racism. To what extent are these bannings exclusively fueled by books that involve topics concerning race and non-heteronormative and non-cisgender content? Yeah, so one thing to know about book challenges is that they are very reactionary. So we are moving to a um, majority-minority country, which is what it was usually termed by 2040. But of course, uh, kids under the age of 18 are already majority-minority in our country. Um, how do we tell those people, these kids of this next generation, about their history? So that's really what we see here is that people thought we had a shared history, um, a shared understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a good citizen. Um, but um, that is not necessarily agreed upon. And the House Committee on Oversight and Reform has said that they would examine, quote, the ongoing efforts across the country to ban books from schools and public libraries. But you've previously mentioned that it's more of a local issue. If there is a solution on the local level to these book bannings and these book challenges, what would it look like? Yeah, so this is really a local phenomenon. So I know that there are a lot of conservative groups right now who are joining together, but each of those challenges takes place on a local basis. So that's why it's so important that they are mapped, that you know what is going on in your local community. Um, what does it look like for people to respond? Really, it means showing up, um, going to your um, local public public library school board meeting, I mean, your local library board meeting, your local school board meeting, um, talking to your state legislatures. I think that's actually the next place we need to go with all these different laws that are coming up. Um, it really takes grassroots effort to be able to um, respond. And people should also take the tactics that are being used by these conservative groups to bring these challenges and use them to respond to the challenges. So find people on Facebook or TikTok or wherever who are um, on the same side as you are, write form letters that you can send and have people tailor them to their own legislature. Show up as a group to these public meetings. Um, that's really what can be done. And so that's the support that people can provide. Absolutely. And once again, that was Dr. Emily Knox, an associate professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois. And we discussed the massive uptick in book challenges across the United States. Dr. Knox, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM Radio, Hofstra University. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. And we are back. Yes, I remember to turn my mic on this time. That was Dr. Emily Knox from the University of Illinois. We talked about the rise in book challenges and book bans in the United States over the past nine months. But now it is time to talk about something that I have absolutely no knowledge of at all, <laughs> which is why we have 
Lauren Ballinger here to break it down. Lauren, first of all, how are you this morning? I'm doing good. That's awesome. So you're going to talk about Coachella styles, yes, is that right? Yes, I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of opinions. All on right, this. <laughs> take it away. Um, okay, so one of my favorite things to do is scroll on TikTok. I can tune in into what's going on in the world, catch up on my favorite celebrities and influencers, and find content that I really like. My favorite side of TikTok is fashion talk or uh, fashion TikTok. And this past week, it's been ablaze with content related to outfits people wore at Coachella 2022. Coachella has gained a reputation in the past decade as the sort of event where attendees go all out on the outfits. It's a place for people to enjoy the biggest musical artists at the time while dressing up for the occasion. Just 10 years ago, Coachella was full of people wearing what is considered, quote, normal festival outfits. Stuff like tank tops, crochet tops, sundresses, denim shorts was what was expected when arriving to Coachella. Over the years, Coachella fashion has transformed entirely. For a while, it was a wave of bohemian-style outfits. Each year had its own sort of take on the boho style. 2014 saw a lot of mesh clothing and bodysuits, while 2016 was full of monochromatic outfits. Celebrities like Kendall Jenner, Paris Hilton, and Vanessa Hudgens hopped on the trend, and their presence at Coachella elevated the festival's fashion and arguably made it um, unattainable and expensive, the type of clothes that were expected to be worn. Coachella's two most recent years, 2018 and 2019, saw outfits that are much more aligned with modern mainstream fashion. Things like sequins, leather pants, and Y2K fashion began to pop up during these years. Unfortunately, Coachella's history has also been full of celebrities and attendees participating in cultural appropriation. Vanessa Hudgens wore a bindi on her forehead. Kendall Jenner has worn a nath, which is a piece of Indian bridal jewelry that connects a nose ring and an ear piercing. And Team Vogue wrote a whole article in 2017 advising people on how not to culturally appropriate when at Coachella. The boho chic style has been off to utilize different clothes cultural items as a means of accessorizing. Coachella 2022 was the first one hosted since 2019 due to the pandemic. Some have said that the outfits this year were much more toned down than usual. Others have argued that there was an obvious split between how traditional celebrities dressed and how influencers dressed for the occasion. From my perspective, many of the outfits this year relied heavily on the use of accessories. I saw a lot of cowboy hats, lots of layered necklaces, and different bags being used to elevate an outfit made up of neutral sta staple pieces. Patterns also made a bold appearance, with many dressed in the familiar cow print, marble swirl, zebra print, flower print, things that you've seen, as a means of introducing statement pieces into the looks. There were a lot of two-piece sets, mini dresses with asymmetrical cuts, chainmail dresses, and elevated, simplistic, bohemian looks. People also made uh, somewhat of an effort to center their outfits based on the main performer of the day, especially on day one. Many leaned into the Harry Styles aesthetic. There was, a vibrant, there was vibrant clothing, boa feathers introduced into the look, and all around a more playful feeling to day one outfits. One of the things I often have to remind myself is that Coachella takes place in a desert in the middle of nowhere. Many attendees decide to go with a more low-key look as a means of staying comfortable in the hot Indio desert. One inf influencer who goes by Tara's World was seen wearing a plain t-shirt and Air Force Ones to Coachella. On the third day, Emma Chamberlain appeared in a simple tank top and sweatpants. Still, people like me who stalk Coachella 2022 outfits hashtag on TikTok for hours saw lots of high-heeled boots and people embracing Coachella's maximalist fashion history. 
I think my biggest problem with this year's Coachella, as was many other people's issue, was the fact that it felt as though many people failed to curate their own personal style and then incorporate it into their looks for Coachella 2022. On the other side of the issue is the problem of overdoing it for the sake of Coachella's reputation. Matching fabrics that didn't really go well together, an unhinged assortment of colors and textures, and overall a sense that the wearer hadn't actually developed or embraced their personal style, but instead went with whatever they felt Coachella itself called for. Of course, fashion is a subjective expression of oneself, but I believe that YouTuber Morgan Gamecho put it well when describing what exactly felt off about this year's fashion. Like the additional effort that everybody was putting in ended up being like counterproductive. Whereas if people had just like really like gone and been like embraced their creativity and just tried to express themselves and their own fashion sense rather than thinking about like what everybody else was going to do, what's the vibe this year, I feel like they would have been better off. Personally, my favorite looks of the weekend came from people like Wisdomate on TikTok, Emma Chamberlain, and Madeline White on TikTok, who are all people I feel have taken the time to embrace their own personal style and allow it to carry through to Coachella. I was disappointed to, to see the kinds of clothes you would find on any fast fashion website, like Nasty Gal or Shein, everywhere. To me, this illustrates somewhat of a bigger problem that's been growing in the fashion world. At an event that is known for its fashion, attendees decided to participate in microtrends and things that they believe other people would be wearing. I think that with the rise in accessibility to these fleeting trends, it's hard for people to develop their own personal style if they spend too much time wondering what will be the next quote in look. Again, fashion is a form of self-expression. I'd never knock anyone for trying to show who they are through clothes or have a fun time and dress up for one of the bigger fashion events of the year. Coachella itself is somewhat of a microcosm to explore things like the influencer-celebrity dynamic, the accessibility and affordability of comfort, and the way fast fashion has deteriorated people's sense of style. Um, so, yes, I don't know if we, we don't have any time but that, <laughs> <laughs> to, to chat, but chat amongst yourselves uh, at home. Yeah. That, thank you so much. That was very, very in-depth. I applaud the... <laughs> thank you. The yeah. deep dive. I mean, you clearly spent a lot of time looking at TikTok on this. Like I, I take said, your word for it. Like I said, hours. No, literally. I know we don't have time, but like I was on the same side of TikTok. I was looking. I was like as if I could afford to go to Coachella, get a Coachella outfit. <laughs> yes. like, yeah. You chose to wear cow print. That's the thing. It's safe to judge and from Coachella cow or print from TikTok. And like fringe pants. But they're two different, like leather fringe pants and cow print. Okay. Coachella we'll talk, we'll talk later about this, yeah. Dallas. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk we'll off talk the later. air. We'll talk off the air. Um, but moving on from Coachella to international affairs, that's a tough transition to make. <laughs> um, joining us live over Zoom is Julia Gledhill, an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project of on Government Oversight, with William Hartung, a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible St Statescraft. They co-wrote an article about U.S. arms contractors benefiting from, from the Ukraine conflict titled Pentagon contractors cashing in on the Ukraine crisis, which we'll be talking about today, because this is an issue that a lot of people don't really think about when they think about this conflict, that the arms industry obviously makes their money from building and selling weapons. And now that we're in a war and the United States has sent more in money and aid and equipment to Ukraine than every other nation on Earth combined, what does that mean for the defense industry? How are defense, how are defense contractors benefiting from this? Well, Julia's here to break it down. So, Julia, welcome to the Thursday show. 
Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So what do you feel the average American is most unaware of with regards to defense spending in the United States in the modern era, especially after 9-11 with this Ukraine crisis going on? You know, I don't think anyone would be surprised to hear that the defense industry exerts undue influence on our foreign policy and on the Department of Defense. But I think that folks would probably be shocked at how crass they are about it. I mean, we have executives of defense contractors out there bragging how their stock prices will rise because of a war. It is ridiculous, and I think it's critically important that we, as civil society, look at these moments of crisis in the face to address how opportunists like private defense contractors take advantage and, and leverage crisis like the one in Ukraine for their own private gain. In terms of defense contractors, who's profiting the most from the Ukraine conflict and why? Yeah, so um, in the piece, uh, my co-author and I talk a bit about um, the five uh, biggest weapons producers um, among the defense contractors that we're referring to, right? Um, these are the folks um, who are making the most money, um, you know, off of arms sales in general. Um, those five groups, including uh, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, um, already split $150 billion in Pentagon contracts annually, a figure that is going to skyrocket um, if the administration and Congress have their way in this um, crisis. Um, but, but really, the two that I'll focus on are Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, just because they manufacture two of the biggest weapons that we are transferring to Ukraine, um, which are the Stinger and the Javelin. Um, the Stinger is an anti-aircraft missile and the Javelin is an anti-tank missile. Um, so I'll stop there. I don't want to get too much in the details, but um, those, are, those are really the two companies that um, have a lot to gain at this moment. Um, so just to talk about how spending might change in the future, with Russia increasingly warning the U.S. about sending Ukraine more arms than it already has, how, if all, will defense spending change throughout the course of this conflict? Yeah, so this is kind of the big question, right? Um, we've seen President Biden request from Congress um, $813 billion in national defense spending. That includes um, $773 billion for the Pentagon specifically. Um, and, you know, every year we almost without fail see lawmakers plus up um, the president's budget request to Congress. That means, you know, the whoever's in whoever's in the White House requests a certain amount of money um, for the national defense top line and for the Pentagon as part of that. And lawmakers, almost without fail, um, you know, throw billions of more dollars than the president even asked for at the Department of Defense, which is insane, given that uh, the Department of Defense um, has failed a full financial audit for four years running. I mean, there's just rampant financial mismanagement at the Department of Defense, defense, and um, yet, you know, yet we have Congress, you know, spending more money every single year. So you and your co-author write that it's the changing outlook of Pentagon spending that will be the greatest beneficiary of the current tension of global affairs, Ukraine included. What does that mean for the future of the defense industry? Look, the Pentagon's budget needs to be an accurate reflection of the United States national security needs. Um, 
the defense industry will take advantage of whatever crisis of the moment to push for more spending. They have an incredibly powerful lobbying arm on Capitol Hill, um, but simply adding to the budget year after year does not ensure our security needs are being met um, when money is being spent in the usual way, right? I just talked about um, financial mismanagement at the department um, and blanket increases um, only result in more underdeveloped um, weapons like the F-35, which is an aircraft we mentioned in the piece, um, as well as more failed Navy shipbuilding projects, which we also talk a little bit about. And that only begs the question, your article references the Center for International Policy Sustainable Defense Task Force and a study of alternative approaches to defense carried out by the Congressional Budget Office. What would some changes to defense spending look like if the studies and uh, reports you referenced were able to come to fruition? What would change as opposed to what you were just saying earlier about underdeveloped weapons and uh, financial mismanagement? Yeah, so, you know, one of the um, sort of areas for scaling back that we reference is um, in the nuclear space. Um, There are like, you know, there is an alternative nuclear posture the United States could adopt. Um, I am no nuclear expert, but here at the Project on Government Oversight, we are always looking for areas to scale back where we see this type of financial mismanagement. Um, And nuclear excess is one of those spaces. We mentioned in the piece, um, you know, that could involve the elimination of land-based nuclear missiles um, and and sort of moving toward a reliance instead on, on smaller force. Of, of ballistic missile submarines um, and moving more toward this like deterrence only strategy. Absolutely. And let me just say, I too am no nuclear expert. <laughs> um, but is there anything else you would like to add for our listeners before we let, we let you go? Yeah. So we're always hearing um, people in government, in industry, um, and in the media telling us that we need to boost the Pentagon budget um, for our own security needs. Um, I will just say that um, those folks are really trying to dictate national defense policy from a strictly spending standpoint, um, and it's because there are these special interests at play. Um, But the argument that blanket spending increases will keep us safer is misguided, um, especially given that the Pentagon has yet to pass a complete financial audit, um, and we really need to uh, open our eyes and and make sure that we're paying attention um, when we see profiteering happening in this space. Most certainly. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Really great to talk to you all. No problem. And once again, that was Julia Gledhill, an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. And we talked about an article she co-wrote about how Pentagon contractors are cashing in on the Ukraine crisis. And before we move on to our last story with the birthday girl making a special appearance, I do want to just plug, if you, if any of you listening to the show have any interest in war profiteering, Google Smedley Butler, General Smedley Butler, S-M-E-D-L-E-Y, Smedley Butler. He joined the Spanish-American War when he was 16. He served in the Marines until the late 1920s. And this man saw so many conflicts that you probably have never even heard of when you're talking about, the Sp- we know the Spanish-American War, but he saw the Philippine-American War, the Banana Wars. You, but you didn't know about the Banana Wars, did you? Banana Wars. Exactly, exactly. Um, so he saw war profiteering up front, and he wrote a book about it called War is a Racket. 
And if you have, again, if you have any interest in this type of, this area, this this uh, space of war profiteering, seriously, look up this guy's life. It's incredible what he did. And his book is crazy. He was basically Eisenhower's speech about the indu- war, war industrial complex before he gave that speech. But that's that's the history nerd in me. I'm digressing. Um, we have one final story to get to today, and it's not about war. It's not about disease. It's a feel-good story. It's about third graders in Arizona receiving full rides to college. Alexa, please. Yes, I thought this in. was like a cute little way to end our day. I think it's a fun little story. So Bernard Black Elementary School in Phoenix, Arizona, invited third graders and their parents Monday for what they believed was just going to be another assembly and actually turned out to be the biggest surprise of their lives, basically. Roosevelt School District Superintendent Quinton Boyce surprised parents with news about the commitment by, I think I'm saying this right, Roz Stocksy Foundation? I think he got it. I think I got it. It's it's spelt with a lot of letters, but... It's Rostocksy Foundation to award these 63 third grade students full ride scholarships to college. The foundation will pay for college tuition, books, and room and board through their program called College Promise. The goal of this program is that finances will not be a barrier that stops students from attending college. They want to ensure that college is an option for every third grader who attended that specific assembly. This would be the second time that the Rostocksy Foundation guaranteed a college future for students in the Valley. About 80 third graders in Avondale's Michael Anderson School got the same promise in 2012. The program does have certain requirements that the students need to meet, like graduating from Bernard Black School, as well as from a Phoenix Union High School. And the students must also demonstrate financial need and attend an Arizona State University. Okay, can I just say that my first thought when I read this was Scott's yes, thoughts from me The too. Office. Because Me too. If you don't know that iconic episode, it's when Michael, 10 years before the actual events of the episode take place, he commits to giving a group of elementary school students full rides to college with the intention of being rich enough to do so in 10 years. And then he goes to the school and has to tell them that he's, no, not Which, that rich. Can I tell you that I skip that episode every time I watch The Office? It's so crit, but the- Like, I, I let it play, but I don't watch it. Like, I make sure that it's that I'm busy, because I it's so embarrassing. When they name the room after him, <laughs> the Michael Scott. Anyway, anyway. Um, we can't talk about The we Office can't, right we can't, now. Yeah, this is great. This is awesome. We talked about it on the show before, but student debt is crippling. It's a crazy thing. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. Crazy, scary thing. $1.6 trillion. With a T. With a T. That's more than credit cards, car loans, and any consumer debt other than mortgages. And did you read that as of yesterday, Biden is starting to signal that he might actually start canceling some of it? See, I've heard, like, differing things. I've heard that he came out and said it. I heard they, like, took it back. I've heard he's, like, revisiting it. I think for the simplicity's sake, we'll say he's signaling mm-hmm. that he will potentially move. There's remember, a possibility. Remember that fifty. K, remember that executive order that would have wiped fifty k off the slate. Yeah. Maybe that could happen. But the fact that these kids aren't going to have to worry about this, and I want to give myself credit for what I wrote in the rundown. Um, the kids won't have to deal with this headache, and if it even if it is a headache, all they'll need is an aspirin and they'll be fine. Is this sponsored? I'm so confused. That is not sponsored. <laughs> yeah. Not sponsored. Um, <laughs> the amount of money this program is saving kids is crazy, but it's also, as per recent events, a drop in the bucket for some of America's richest individuals like mm-hmm. Elon Musk. You know, 
Um, maybe it's because I'm very skeptical of philanthropy, but if this is actually partnered with Arizona State Schools and the billion, the billionaires and the millionaires want to make a difference, <laughs> then Not there's oil baron boys. <laughs> <laughs> if these oil barons want to make a difference, I don't know what's stopping them. This is great. This is awesome. I want this in New Jersey. I want this in Hackensack. New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that this is like a really great thing, and I can't expect like a third grader to understand like the scope of this. But I can only imagine like how the parents feel because like college is a financial hardship and burden to go through, and it's mm. kind of like something that hangs over your head if you're trying to like plan it, and you have to like plan for like years to make sure everything's all set. Mm-hmm. And like college is like not about i feel like it's no longer about getting like the best education it's about going where you can it's about going where you can or getting the best education like you can afford or the education that's best to afford i think like i kind of touched on that in my talking points on the rundown it's it's almost like like having that backbone of like okay i was promised a full ride to college as long as i do this exactly and that's what i was talking about it's a big like it's a big thing for these students as they, especially when they get to high school, it will help with, for like mental health for them mm-hmm. in a way. Like I know through high school, like my big thing was not that grades were ever a, a big problem. Like I'm not, I was always doing well in school, but when you're looking to get a scholarship to college, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a whole other ball game. Like you need to have specific criteria and you need to be able to, like have those grades to keep the scholarship and at the end of the day it's mentally draining and it's exhausting because all you have you're forced to think about money all the time and you don't want to have to do that and now for these kids not only is it going to help them financially in that way but it's going to help them mentally and emotionally as they go through high school and college even yeah and now you're motivated to do better but rachel Tell us, what do you think? (laughs) Going off what Alexis said, I was going to talk about how I think finding scholarships is one of the most difficult processes in the college experience because like people don't know where to look, what ones to trust. And I think that they also think about how likely are they to actually receive a scholarship, especially Mm -hmm. if it's one that you apply for online and like thousands of kids are applying for it as well. So I think that the foundation that because the foundation directly gave these kids the scholarships, it just made like the whole process a lot more meaningful and easier. And even though, like you said, Dallas, third graders are not thinking about college, especially because when I was in third grade, I was like, I would be like, what did I just? I was win? like, what crayon am I? Am I going today? to college? Like, <laughs> I'm just playing on my iPod Touch. Like, I don't know. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, my pink DS. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was very, very nice of the foundation to do that, and I would like to see it be done in other states too. All right, Lauren, what do you think? I also think like. Part of, like, going to college and, like, not having, like, you're going to have loans after is, like, okay, I need to work in college to make sure I will have a job immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think part of, like, having that financial backbone or, like, thing to fall back on or resource is you can actually, like, explore kind of when Mm -hmm. you're in college, too. And you don't necessarily have to – you can do what education is meant for, Mm -hmm. and that's to learn more, and I think – that that's amazing too, um, and I think we'll take that stress off of maybe. Of course, you want to get a job after school always, but 
you're able to kind of it doesn't more, feel forced. Yeah, yeah, you have a bit more leg room to in that sense. Gap your backpacking across Europe. Anyone? Anyone? Ah, <laughs> no, to like jump off of a point that you just brought up, Lauren. Like talking about like you could actually explore. The tuition price for college makes you constricted to. It feels like you're constricted to amount of time you can be here. Like you're, t- mm-hmm. I can't. Like you're trying to be here as short amount of time as possible, so you don't have to pay for like extra semesters or even extra years of school. So like to be able to be like, oh, like I'm gonna be all, I'm gonna be chilling when we all set. Let me see like what classes I can take and like try to fiddle around with my schedule. You can mm-hmm. figure out what you want to do. Yeah, because like for me, graduating on time is so important because I'm not trying to pay more money. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's it's such a big thing too. And then even like, like that goes along. You kind of touched on it. It's like a career path, like. Mm-hmm. My major is my major. Like, I would be too, like, if I'm going to switch majors, which I'm not planning on doing, but if I were to switch majors, I would keep it in the same general area, even if that's something that I decided I didn't want anymore. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be able to jump. I'd be too scared of, like, starting over. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So these students, if they say this is, I don't, I didn't read, like, the fine print on the scholarship that they were given, the full ride scholarship. But if, if they needed to stay extra semesters, say they only they only had to pay for like an extra two semesters, at the end of the day, that is still way better than what mm-hmm. anyone else mm-hmm. is paying for right now. So if they wanted to switch their major halfway through their college experience, they technically like, I mean, obviously but they would have to think about it, but if they wanted to, they could. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like for me at least like the idea of switching my major and needing to start over is like terrifying it gives you like a new certain level of freedom because you're like i feel like i can truly like do what i want to do and not be afraid of debt because as a child like weird fear of mine i was afraid of like the irs (laughs) 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 terrified all the kids were afraid of the boogeyman dallas said the irs is out to get me monsters inc irs version yeah i was so afraid of like committing tax fraud (laughs) like like, bank collectors coming after what like your eight-year-old self was like oh my gosh what if i accidentally because tax fraud what i think that was like around the first time i was like became like hyper aware of like money and like finances and things like that so i was sitting there like you know what oh. they, you know what they say about the IRS. They look at your income and say some of it is theirs. Get it? IRS is the last few letters of theirs. I just blew your mind. I just blew your mind. I just blew your mind. Danny, sometimes you have good Danny zingers, but I don't think that was that, that was one of them. I know you. I know. <laughs> I knew that. I know that just blew your mind. Sometimes you have good Danny zingers. That unfortunately was not one of them. <laughs> I am so sorry about that. You tried. You put in the effort. I did. Um, But to finish off this whole great feel-good story, I just hope that the parents can feel Mm -hmm. at ease now. I mean, we talk about the kids and not even knowing what they're getting into, but the parents, I mean – Every time I talk to my dad about money, he's like, yeah, there's still the money Grandma Cecilia left. I'm like, who? (laughs) 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 See, if you look at the article, um, a lot of it is quotes from the parents talking about how grateful they are. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and that's great, and that's awesome. I think that's really the key here, like the parents, like getting that huge weight off their shoulders. That's amazing because all the great work that parents do, shout out parents. Shout out parents. Shout out parents everywhere. Like, the fact that these parents can breathe a sigh of relief and go to bed at night and not have to worry about the mm. IRS coming out of their closet. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that is so Dallas's biggest fear. <laughs> oh, my god! It's it's a great, 
great tale of just generosity and philanthropy that is inspiring. It sheds a light in these dark times. I agree. It does. True. Yes. But hey, that's that's it for our show this morning, guys. Oh my goodness. Um, are we gonna sing happy birthday to Rachel before we go? No, Do you think anybody listening right now wants to hear our voices <laughs> singing happy birthday to Rachel? All right, no, I just we'll the most we'll tone down um, postmortem. We'll I guess not. Yeah, we'll do it in the po- we'll do it in post. We will save the ears of everybody listening and yeah. we will sing to Rachel. Just be for me. I'll get into my Mariah Carey whistle tone. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, of course. It's okay. Um, you're too busy worried about if the IRS is hiding under your bed. So. Yeah, sorry. I didn't warm up. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, but again, from myself, Alexa, Lauren, and Rachel. Wow. A Not full- Dallas? <laughs> oh, shoot. I forgot Dallas. Not Dallas? I'm looking directly into your soul I know, right now. I know. Maybe I did a double take. But from myself, Alexa, Dallas, Rachel, and Lauren, a full studio for the first Woo-hoo! time. In yes. my time here at WRHU, wow. Wow. Crazy. Um, have a great rest of your Thursday. Have a great weekend. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow to hear Rachel and Luke yeah. on the Friday show. Until then, this is the Thursday show signing off.